You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.vin. Good morning to you in the room, and good morning to you on live. Today, we're carrying on in our season. We've been looking at future focus. And we've been journeying through the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church, the church in Thessalonica. And at that time, it was a Roman province and it was in Macedonia. But these days, it's Thessaloniki and it's in northern Greece. Paul had spent some time there. If you've been listening, I'm probably recapping stuff that you've been hearing every week for ages. But Paul basically had visited this place and he'd been there for at least three weeks because the scriptures tell us that he'd preached three Sundays in the synagogue. But he may have been there longer, but he had had to leave in the middle of the night um, due to people kind of hunting him down for what he was preaching. So we're going to carry on in his letter today, and we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. And it's going to come up on the screen behind me also. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were there with you, we kept telling you that you would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have been tempted or tempted you into, um, sorry. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. That's a lot of temptations in one sentence. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and he has brought good news about your faith and your love. He has told us that you have always have pleasant memories of us, that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all of our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. You know, I find it quite, um, I suppose, fascinating and quite overwhelming when reading a lot of scripture, but particularly when I was reading this. You know, that this would have been one of the earliest manuscripts in the New Testament that was written. It was written in 51 AD, a long time ago, way before my life. We're reading about the early church, the birth of our faith. And we're talking about that in these believers that are there. We're hearing about that in this scripture. But we are standing here in Scotland hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, and we're reading the same message, receiving the same teaching. And it's amazing to be able to recognise how not only has our faith survived, but it's grown and it's thrived through all these years. But that's not a fluke. Definitely not a fluke. It was part of the plan, wasn't it? And Jesus, in one of his last words to his followers before he ascended, He gave what we now know as the Great Commission, and it's in Matthew 28. I just want to read this out. Jesus said this to them. You'll you'll know this if you know scripture. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Discipleship is the key to our future of our faith, isn't it? That's why it's grown and thrived with God being with us through everything, but us discipling. It's God's way of us sharing our faith with others, teaching others how how he loves, and then teaching others, and then others, and others. It's passing it down. That we are discipled by people, but then we have to disciple others as well. And today, as I was reading this scripture, well, not today, because I didn't write this this morning. That would have been really weird. But as I was writing this, I just wanted to look, actually, at key characteristics of the discipleship relationship. As Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, what characteristics can we find in this relationship that we can then learn from today and be encouraged and kind of challenge ourselves from today. So there's three things I want to look at. And the first is discipleship relationship is one that takes investment and it's often sacrificial. Has anybody here ever heard of the fable of the chicken and the pig? Yes, some will have. Well, I heard a wee adaptation of it um, recently. And in the adaptation, it was that the chicken and the pig were working at a food bank. And they were having a meeting with the rest of the workers there as to how to help individuals with the cost of living crisis to be able to be fed. And so they were taking some time to ponder. And then the chicken came up with a great plan and said to everyone, well, I lay eggs, so every day we could have eggs. And every day we could get some pig, eh, pig, bacon from the pig, and we could give people bacon and eggs. And then everybody will be feeding and nobody will go hungry. Obviously, that's the fable I ended, by the way, that's it. The whole idea is the difference between contributing to something and actually fully committed. You know, for the egg, being laid every day. The chicken wasn't having a problem doing that. That was just something that they did all the time. No skin off their back, intended pun. <laughs> but the poor pig was having to give us all in that kind of scenario. And that idea between fully committed and just maybe contributing when, when we think about it or, or when it's easy for us or whatever. But I read in this scripture today that pool, it pool? Paul was fully committed. He was committed emotionally and with his time and with his efforts. You see that he was committed emotionally because in the scripture in verse 1 and verse 5, it uses language like he could stand it no longer. Now that's not just kind of everyday language, but that's language that shows the strength of his emotions and his feelings as he was separated from these people that he was trying to support and disciple. He had been kind of ripped away from them before he wanted to be through circumstances. And he, he was emotionally invested in this relationship, though. And in verse 5, it talks about his fears of the, the worries that he was having of what was going to be happening to them in this time when they were facing temptation and trials and tribulations. And then you see the emotional response that he had when he found out they were okay, the joy and the relief that he'd had. He was... He was emotionally invested in this relationship. This wasn't just when he had the opportunity to think about them and they came across his mind, then he would pray for them. This was something that he was intentionally doing. And that is like the discipleship process, intentionally taking time to invest our emotions 
with the people that we're um, discipling, I suppose. He also has spent a lot of time. He'd spent time there with them. He didn't plan to leave when he did. He just had to because of circumstances. But it says in other parts of the scripture that he wanted to go back, but he wasn't able to. It says in scripture that Satan stopped him. But there's a number of circumstances that would have stopped him going back when he wanted to. But verse 10 says that day and night he's been praying. Day and night he was spending time praying for those people. Not just kind of, again, when it's coming across his mind. And he wasn't having maybe to set an alarm. It's good of us to set an alarm. But it was something that was on his heart. And it was strength of relationship that was there. The discipleship relationship is one that is invested with emotions and with time. And also his efforts. He says there in verse 1, doesn't he, that he sent Timothy over. Even though it meant that they were being left alone, he would send Timothy. It was that sacrificial way of, I need to send you. Even though Timothy is busy, we need to send it to you. It's almost like sacrificing their own needs because of the love and the care that they had for these people. It was an invested relationship, sacrificial probably. When I was thinking about how to kind of, or how we can kind of weigh that up, or what would that look like today out with a discipleship relationship, you know, I was thinking of, I was actually thinking of Kat Moore with her lovely four children. And imagine if Kat's children only got fed when she thought about it. Well, maybe she does think about it all the time. Maybe she... Or every time she thought about it and thought, oh, I must change a nappy or, oh, maybe they need to go to bed or, you know, just as it crossed her mind every so often, those children would not be the children that they are today if that was the case. But no, it takes time, doesn't it, effort. I don't have a child of my own, but I've been around many children in my life. Uh, my mum and dad have fostered for many years and I've had a girl living in my house who was pregnant and then had a baby. So I know the effort and the time that it takes I know the sleepless nights, the financial strain as well. And when I think of, an, an, I mean, that is an intense, I'm not expecting that's what discipleship relationship is exactly like, maybe not as intense like that. But in the same way, it's nurturing, not just when it crosses our mind or when we feel like it, but something that takes um, discipline in ourselves to, di to disciple somebody else. It takes love and it takes time and it takes effort. And as I've been preparing this, I've been thinking of myself, who am I taking time to do that now? And you know, the thing that God has been speaking to me as well, who do I need to pick up the phone to, to reconnect with? Who have I maybe let drop when actually that wasn't the right timing and it wasn't God that was saying that? And my question then to us today, to you as well, is to who are we investing in? If we've been called by Jesus to disciple and to teach the ways of our faith. And for those new people coming into the faith, who are we taking under our wing to take time, as Paul was doing here, to invest in, to walk with, and to teach the ways of Jesus? So that's our challenge this morning. Who is it? And maybe, like me, it's about reconnecting with somebody, somebody that maybe we've let drop for whatever circumstances. And maybe it's about picking that back up again and saying to Jesus, what do you want me to do? How can I support this person? How can I help them to grow? So that's the first thing. Discipleship relationship is one that is an investment. And the second thing I want to look at is the discipleship relationship is one that is um, characterized by real talk. So by real talk, I mean 
candid, you know, without filter potentially of worrying what the person might think if I say this. In verse 4, we read here in this scripture that Paul told the Thessalonians to expect persecution. And he said in a way that you knew that he told them over and over again to expect persecution. I don't know if you have any friends that do um, or what I would call, and I think it is a word, somebody said I made it up, I don't think I did, catastrophizing. You heard of that word? Yeah, some of us, I think it's maybe a new word, but I don't know. Anyway, does anybody know anybody that catastrophizes? I've got a few in my life. And if you don't know what it means, then it's like almost thinking the worst thing that could possibly happen, and then without any evidence of it going to happen, act like it is going to happen, or that it is happening. And so for me, one stupid example, I suppose, is um, when I was with a friend. I'm totally in the wrong bit here, am I? No, I'm not. Um, I was with a friend. Sorry, I lost my picture. Um, I was with a friend, and we were going on holiday. Three of us were going. And one of my friends kept acting like only two of us were going. Every time they were looking at hotel rooms or flights, there was two, and I was like, I don't understand, like, you know, with three of us going on holiday, three of us are in this conversation and three of us are going. I mean, they weren't doing it in front of this person, they were doing it, like, in the chat. And it turns out that they had felt, well, they're not going to go. And I was like, why do you think they're not going to go? They say they're going. And, like, deep in their heart, they really wanted all of us to go, but something in them said, oh, it's going to not work out, something's going to go wrong, it's going to be a disaster, and there's only going to be two of us going. I mean, I'm sure that would have been fine if it was just me they were going with, but um, they were, there was almost like they were really worried or upset or stressed. I don't know what it was. But as the kind of organizations went on, this kept happening, but eventually the rest of us took over and we ordered three flights and accommodation for three people rather than just two. And it worked out fine, we all went. But this person I have learned since then, this happens many times in their life because of the worry or the stress and it's what we call catastrophizing, like this, the worst is going to happen. And when I'm reading this here, you know, we might think, oh, you know, is Paul one that would be walking down the street with a billboard saying the end is nigh and, you know, that he's just thinking the worst, but he's not. This is totally different to thinking the worst and catastrophizing what he's going through here. This was real. This was what was really happening. When he told those disciples, those young Christians in um, Thessalonica, that this was going to happen. He was speaking real talk. And we know that because um, when he said in verse 3 that we were destined for them, and the reason he knew they were destined for these trials was because Jesus said that. In the book of John 15, verse 19 to 20, let me read this out for you. It says this, Jesus talking. He said, if the world hates you, then keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, then it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, that no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So Paul knew that this was the teaching of Jesus. And the second reason that we know that it wasn't just catastrophizing was that Paul had experienced this himself many times. I mean, he'd, been he'd kind of been thrown out of um, having to leave in the middle of the night of Thessalonica before, but everywhere else he'd been as well. 
there had been these opportunities when he spoke about Jesus, when he went against the culture that was there, he was driven out of town. So what he was doing was real talk. He was letting the disciples know what they were looking, not looking forward to, but what could be happening to them so that they were equipped and they were enabled to, to make it through to the other side. As disciples of Jesus, as we follow his values and as we follow, follow his um, his way of living life, we become more separate and more separate from other culture. We become different, don't we? We might have choices to make that make us different to those around us, our friends, even our families for some. And we'll have stands to take that maybe will be uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus went through. And he says to us that he's with us through it all. It's not all doom and gloom. It's an amazing thing to be a Christian, as you probably all know. But this is the real talk of it. As we differ and as we follow Jesus' values and his way of living, we will differ from others and that will bring trials and it may, might bring persecution for us. Because as we choose to live differently, there'll be choices that we have to make in our lives. For me, when I first became a Christian, for me it was choosing to not go out and just get drunk every night with my friends the way that it used to happen. And I had to make changes in my life so that would be something that I was able to do. So for me, that was, that was me. I don't know what it might be for you, but some things off the top of the head, it might be that we don't partake in office gossip or school gossip, where everybody else is, is maybe putting people down or talking in a way that is not healthy, that we know is not healthy. It's not the way Jesus would want us to do. Then it's taking a stand and stepping back from that and maybe speaking up for those who are being downtrodden by others. It might be choosing our relationships differently, to be with people that we knew, we know are more of who God has for us and more in line with our values as we walk with Jesus. It might be choosing to be celibate in our relationship when our culture around us says, oh, that's old fashioned talk. But it might be choosing to go exactly with the way that Jesus has chosen and has spoken about. Or it might be choosing to have grace and forgiveness when we live in a culture that just cancels people out the minute they've done something wrong. They're wrong, just get rid of them. But choosing grace and forgiveness as we, as we kind of interact with those that we know and we love in our community. There's a different way when we're a Christian. Noted historian Thomas Reeves, I don't know if you know him, but he was a um, professor at University of Wisconsin Parkside and he said this quote, he said that Christianity in modern America, and I believe today as well, that's why I'm saying it, it's like relevant, in large is innocuous. It tends to be easy, upbeat, convenient, compatible, and doesn't require self-sacrifice, um, dis um, discipline or humility or otherworldly outlook, a zeal for souls or a fear as well as a love for God. Let me say that again. Christianity modern America, maybe Britain, is in large innocuous. It tends to be easy, upbeat, convenient, and compatible. Doesn't require self-sacrifice or discipline or humility or other worldly outlook or zeal for souls or a fear and a love for God. When you're thinking of Christianity and telling your friends maybe, or those who are new in the faith, I don't know how you explain what it is to follow Jesus. But that's not how Paul describes it. And that's not how Jesus describes it. There will be differences. There will be stands to take. Because Jesus' values, God's values for our life are different. 
and they're becoming more different often. And so when we talk of Jesus and we disciple people, we have to have real talk. Are we really letting people know what it is that they're doing in following Jesus? If we're saying, oh, it's great, nothing will change in your life, it's just that you're following Jesus, then that's not really how the Bible puts it, is it? And that's not how Paul is putting it here. But it's showing that there is a difference. We recently had a lady called Rachel Turner here who was doing some work with the kids' teams and with, um, well, with the whole church, really. But she had said um, something that stuck with me. I wasn't actually there, but I heard it through other hands, so I'm sure, my other mouths, I'm sure she did say it. Um, and she was saying that actually we need to um, prepare our children, because if our children grow up in a world thinking they are no different, then often they're getting into trouble maybe when they're older and having to make those same choices at school and choices of living. But if we prepare our children early on, that you are different, your, your, your values will be different potentially, but help them to understand that and to know that, then what we're doing is we're equipping them for their life as a Christian. I want to tell you the story of Sina. Many of you may know Sina. He was in your congregation here for quite some time, over 18 months, and he recently moved away to Glasgow. But Sina, yeah, he moved away. I'm sorry, Cam. But um, if anybody didn't know that, sorry if that's a spoiler and you didn't know, but he has. But he, he's happy there and he's with his father, so it's very good. So, Sina is an asylum seeker, a young man, and he came here um, to the UK from Iran. He was living in East Iran, and he had been brought up as a Muslim, devout, his family, his grandfather in particular, and uncles, really um, devout Muslim. And in the area that he lived, there was a, a prophet, a uh, uh, a prophet called Reza and there was a holy shrine in round his grave so it was an area where everybody used to go on pilgrims to and, and travel to that area it was a an area where it really was quite a um, devout area and so he grew up in this um, place and from uh, kind of early teenage years he started to kind of think this isn't for me and started to really go against what he was being taught and for him he would say that actually it was the thought of God being a, a vengeful God and there being hatred and violence and war. He, he couldn't understand. And he didn't know any other God. He didn't know any other way, but he just knew for him and his heart that that didn't settle. And so um, he just kind of fell away from the belief. He obviously was still with his family, but he wasn't practicing it the way that others were. And um, they moved house, him and his immediate family, his mom, his younger siblings, and his dad. And they the area they moved to, they had a family friend. And they used to go swimming with this family friend. And him and his dad would have really deep conversations with this man. And this man, there was something different about him, Sina said. They could all tell it. And when they were speaking to him, he was one of forgiveness and love and grace. And they were just kind of getting to know each other and chatting through some stuff and then um, this man gave Sina and his dad a bit of paper with a photocopy and in it was a story and the man said to him why don't you go and read this story and tell me what you think so they did that and they took it away now he didn't know at the time but it turns out that that was the story of the prodigal son and when they read it they were like yeah that's all right what is this and the man was able to tell them. Now, obviously, he'd been testing waters for a while because to tell somebody you were a Christian meant your life was taken from you in that area. And so there was a lot of fear around it. But the man was able to share with him 
this is a story about God. So the prodigal son, the story of the father who, um, whose son basically squanders, he basically takes his money and squanders it all um, before the father is dead, almost wishing him dead, taking all his money, going away, spending it on things he shouldn't be spending it on. And then the shame and knowing what he's done, feeling like he can't go back to the father. But this story, if you've not read it, is a story of where the father is watching out for his son, looking out for him, hoping and praying that he will come back home. Um, and he does. And he comes home and he's welcomed in, back into the family with open arms, fully forgiven, fully given back the restoration of everything that it would be to be a son to that man. And the man was able to share to Sina and his dad that this is a story of God and how he feels about you. And they couldn't believe it. And for Sina, it actually filled the hole in his heart that he knew, even though he'd never heard of Christianity and he'd never heard of any of this stuff, to him it resonated completely because this is what he believed that God would be like, this loving, loving father. So, um, long story short, they started going to church, house church again, uh, kind of under wraps, just him and his dad. His mum didn't know, none of the rest of the family because for others, it was other people that would have arrested you and taken you in, but for him, it was his own family. So they really couldn't tell anybody. They started going along just a monthly house church and after a few months, it was raided um, by the police. Somebody had stolen and given all the names of the people that went. And Sina and his dad weren't there that night. They were late. Um, not that he's always late, but um, he was late that night. <laughs> and they actually arrived as they saw um, people being arrested and taken away. And so they ran just with what they had. They picked up the mother and the siblings. They dropped them off somewhere because they knew that they would be raiding their house very soon because they would have had all their names, took their mum and other children to safety and him and his dad left. They had to get trafficked out of the country um, and they arrived in the UK after a treacherous journey, most of it walking to be honest. And so Sina tells the story though of a time when he got separated from his dad in Serbia and he was walking through Croatia with a trafficker and an uncle and his nephew. And he said it was a time where he has, had come to the end of himself. He was separated from his dad. He was so upset about all of that. He has, was dehydrated. He hadn't eaten or drunk for four days. And he just said to the trafficker, I'm not going anymore. Just leave me here to die. Just go ahead. Just leave me here. I don't mind. Just go. And they decided all to stop for a rest and to look for water because it wasn't only Sina that was thirsty. Everybody was at the end of themselves. So they did that. They started searching. And as they split up, um, it was Sina and the older man, the uncle of the, of the young boy, and, and they were looking together. And as they were looking, a cross fell out of the uncle's um, shirt, and Sina saw it and said, are you a believer? And he said, yes, I am. And they both said, let's pray. Let's pray that we find water. So they did. They took time. I mean, they were looking as well, but they were praying, and they were asking Jesus to save them, basically, to save them and to give them water. And um, they didn't find water. And the other guys came back. And again, Sina said at this point, he was just in tears. He just couldn't go on. But they said, right, come on, let's just go on a bit further until we really can't go any further. So they did. They started off again. And he says within about two minutes, like they hadn't walked far at all. And actually somebody must have searched that area, they think. They came across four massive tubs of water. Now, it wasn't clean water. It was obviously he'd been left there for animals or something. 
but it was water that they were able to drink and to keep them alive. And Sina and the, the uncle and the young boy were just, I mean, the trafficker must have thought they were mad, but they were all like praising God and jumping around, thanking him for this water. And you know, when Sina tells you these stories, and if you've ever heard Sina speak, he just exudes God. He just, the excitement that he has. And he's, when he asks him about his testimony, he says, my whole life is a testimony. God saved me so many times in that time. There are many other stories but God saved him from that place. But you know, when he was being discipled, he knew there was real talk. He knew what was ahead of him. He knew the cost and he knew what would potentially happen to his family and to his own life. But yet those things didn't want to hold him back, but they equipped him for the way forward. And when he arrived here in the UK, standing firm in his faith with God, even stronger because of the trials that he'd been through. And it wasn't only Sina there. Like when I look at this story in Thessalonians here, we read in verse 8 and in verse 7 that when Timothy found them, they found them standing firm in the Lord because they had been told and equipped and warned of what would happen. It didn't come as a surprise, like, oh my goodness, trials are happening. Ah, I'll get it all wrong and fall flat on our face. But they knew and they were able to stand firm in the Lord. Verse 7 says that they remained in the Lord. So when we disciple, we want to equip people with the truth, with real talk that will allow them not to fall flat on their face, but to stand firm in the face of trials, in the face of making different decisions to all of those around us. And when our culture says one thing, but we believe the other, that we can stand firm in our faith. So the discipleship relationship is characterized by real talk. And the last thing I want to look at is the discipleship relationship. Um, it's life-giving. It's absolutely life-giving. You know, I, I spoke about Kat earlier with her four children and anybody with children. If you've gone through those sleepless nights and pooey nappies and all the financial hardships that it might have brought you, just about every parent, most parents, nearly all parents, would say that it was worth it all. Would they not? Would they? Yes. yes. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, no, maybe I've got that wrong. But no, it's worth it all. Because in the end, you can see the joy that they bring. And when we look here in this scripture about the joy, we look in verse 8, um, Paul says, Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Verse 7 says, We're encouraged even in our distress and in the bad times because you're okay. We're encouraged even though everything's still going on. And in verse 9, the joy we have because of you. It's life-giving. The discipleship relationship is life-giving. You know, that bit that Paul says, that says, now we really live, that's not just the absence of kind of anxiety and worry, but what it is, it says it's energizing and it's life-giving. And if you've ever been involved in discipleship and when you see the person kind of growing in the Lord and doing amazing things, taking steps of faith, Making choices that go against culture, that go against, it's amazing to see that. It, it must be like seeing your own child kind of growing and, and stepping over those milestones and doing well in their life. It's hard work and it's sacrificial, but it's life-giving. So today, I want us to be challenged in a number of ways, as I have been challenged as, I, as I've been reading this. But let's see, who are we spending time with? Who are we investing in? 
And who do we need to give real talk to? Who maybe have we not quite equipped somebody in, in knowing that you are different to the world if you're in Jesus? Who do we need to have that conversation with so that they don't fall on their face, but instead they stand firm? And there's one other thing as well that when we were, when I was reading this, I felt that for the Lord, maybe had a word for somebody about um, afresh. When Jesus makes that great commission and calls us afresh to disciple, that that's not like once you've been a Christian for 10 years, then you get to disciple, but we're all called to disciple. We're all called to take on people that are kind of maybe newer in the faith than us. So maybe we've only been a Christian for a few months or a year, but let's support somebody who's behind us as well. And maybe that's a word for you as you he heard that scripture that I read out in Matthew when Jesus said, go and make disciples. And the promise of that was that he would be with us always. Let's stand. Father God, Lord, would you call us afresh? And Lord, for those people that are coming into our minds as we hear this, Lord, the people maybe that we've spent time investing in in the past that we haven't seen for a while. For those maybe you're putting on our minds right now that maybe we need to invest in. Lord, in all of this, would we know that this isn't in our own strength? But Lord, that it's you. It's your life. It's your word. And you're in this with us. So Jesus, I pray for each of us, Lord, as we take the opportunity to think this through. To prayerfully consider before you the effort and the time that maybe we, we need to put in. Spirit of God, would you open doors for us? Would you equip us, Lord Jesus? Would you give us the vision and the resources that we need to do your work here? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.